Well, happy Hallmark holiday to those of you, especially of the male persuasion, and even more specifically, those who have progeny. I could never get away with that on Mother's Day, but I think I could do it on Father's Day and be all right. Well, a great uh, morning of worship so far already. Beautiful singing. That was quite uh, a great song, the special. It was a little simple, you know, but uh, it was a great song with a great message. You fill in the blanks, and it's an awesome message. And that's what a lot of people need. Uh, they need something that, that provokes them to think. And then you help fill in the blanks. Um, and a great presentation from Chuck this morning. And I'll talk a little more about Chuck and Andy a little bit later. Years ago, I, I read a book about David, the shepherd king of Israel. And the author was saying, you know, David seems to be the kind of guy I could just sit down across the table, have a cup of coffee with, really enjoy time together. Paul doesn't strike me like that at all. But David, I think I could enjoy fellowshipping with him. The implication, of course, uh, was that David was the mellow king. And Paul was so intense that just to spend a few minutes in his presence, you would wither from the heat and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because you feel so guilty. Now, neither one of those characters is, 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 is accurate, but I can understand why he would feel that way about both David and, and Paul. The picture that many would paint of the Apostle Paul is one of an angry and critical man. The impression is that, that Paul was short on encouragement, but he would set you straight in a very short minute if he thought that you were doing something you shouldn't be doing, or if you disagreed with him, that he would come at you hard. But if you'll read Scripture just a little more closely, you'll realize that, that, that while it's true Paul was very passionate about certain things that he believed, there were other times that he was quite the encourager. In fact, if you'll recall, a couple of years ago in our study of Acts, actually just a little over a year ago, there were at least two times where Paul was so discouraged that he wanted to just give up and quit ministry. Of course, one time he was in jail, and, and, and he didn't really have a choice, or it seemed that he didn't have a choice, but he did have a choice, and he had phenomenal ministry after that. And oddly enough, people who, are, who get discouraged like that are oftentimes the very people who will run out and find others who were discouraged and encourage them. And in fact, you see all over the New Testament Paul doing that. It's fair to say that Paul was the man who, who went out and killed Christians, but it's also, it also must be acknowledged that this was a man with a, a very tender heart that grew from the moment that he met Jesus uh, and the moment that Jesus saved him. Paul knew when to encourage, but he also knew when to go to battle. And whenever the purity of the gospel was at stake, Paul put on his armor and he ran into the arena. At all cost, Paul seemed to say, I am going to defend this gospel. And when he wrote to the Galatian churches, not only their eternal freedom was at stake, so was ours. Freedom 
through the ages was at stake. That's one of the reasons we've titled this series Sons and Slaves. You'll see this concept in Galatians over and over again, including in our text today, Galatians 2, 1 to 10. The issue at question was the place of the law in the life of a Christian. I mean, when does the law come? In, In theological terms, the question has to be this. Is my relationship with Christ dependent on being under the law or... Does the relationship to the law depend on my relationship with Christ? Am I rightly related to Jesus because I keep the law? Or do I keep the law because I am rightly related to Jesus? Which comes first, the law or Jesus? Well, in in Bible order, the law came first. But all the law did was offer a diagnosis of our problem, which was sin. And is sin. There's nothing wrong with the law. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It diagnoses our problem. But there's nothing the law can do to cure our problem. It's powerless to do anything about our condition. You ever had an MRI with something that was found on your body or in your body? um, And and you you go in this tube. Who's had an MRI? Anybody ever had an MRI? Quite a few of you. My, that's a lot of money going to a lot of different people. You, you, you go into this tube and, 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 <clears throat> and this machine takes a picture of something that's in your body that doesn't belong there. Maybe a tumor or an infection. Or it takes a picture, reveals something that is broken or torn. <clears throat> it, it can diagnose your problem, but it doesn't matter how many times you go into that machine. It's not going to cure you. Now, when you go in that machine and the pictures are taken, it's going to give doctors an idea of what's going on, and they may be able to put together a plan that will bring about a cure. They They can plan a course of treatment that may, in fact, cure your disease. The law and the gospel are pretty much like that. The law is very good at doing what it's supposed to do. It diagnoses your problem. But the law cannot cure your problem. It's powerless to save you. But there is a cure, and the law actually points toward the cure. The cure is Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the cure to our problem? That's what the gospel tells us. It's good news that even though... We have an eternally fatal condition because of our sin. Something was done about our sin. Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin so that we might have his righteousness attributed to us. Keeping the law can never make us righteous because we can never live like the law requires. What does the law require? Perfection. It's not happening. Man, Chuck and Andy have some of the most compliant, obedient kids I've ever seen in my life. Chuck's pretty compliant too. Andy says, hey, do this. And no, just kidding. But they say, you know, no, you can't have it. And they don't go, (laughs) they just say, okay. You know, I guarantee you, they're sinners. Those kids are sinners. 
And, and, and Chuck and Annie didn't have to teach them. I mean, they've got quite a role model in Chuck, but they, he didn't have to. They learned it naturally. So, perfection is required. We can't keep it. But Jesus did keep it perfectly. I, I was praying. Alice and I pray almost every Sunday coming over here, unless we've had a really big fight. We did pray this morning. And um, which was almost never, almost never. Uh, I usually point out where she's, no, <laughs> it's the other way around. Uh, yeah, I know, it's just really going from bad to worse. I got to quit that stuff right now or I'm in big trouble, even on Father's Day. But this morning, I was praying and I was just overwhelmed with gratitude that Jesus lived the life that I was incapable of living because that made him an eligible sacrifice. And when he died on the cross, he died a death that I was ineligible to die. When we believe in him or into him, as the Gospel of John puts it in the Greek, it's a beautiful Greek construction, uh, construction, pistuo ace. John is saying that we believe into Jesus with all of our hearts. Everything in us, we put our trust in him. Then we are made new creations as we sing about this morning. And any law keeping that we do from that point forward, we do from because Jesus lives in us. There was no way we could be saved by the law before we met Jesus, and there is no way we can stay saved by keeping the law after we know him. In fact, if we feel compelled to keep the law in order to stay saved, we're not believing the gospel. We're believing a false gospel. And that's trouble. The pure gospel is this. Jesus died for our sin. And that's what Paul was arguing for, not only in the first years of his ministry, but all the way till the end of his life. Christianity was considered in the first century to be a sect of Judaism. I mean, the church met in the temple, and it met some in the synagogues, and it had mostly Jewish leadership in the churches, especially in the early days of, of Gentile conversion. Even still, most of the leaders in the church were, were Jewish, and it was kind of like, look, we know how to deal with God. And we're following Jesus, so let us be in charge. And the Gentiles said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're looking to you. So go right ahead. As the Gentile population grew in the church, many of the Jewish followers of Jesus wanted to make sure that the church stayed connected with the Jewish nation. It wasn't just, look, they didn't get this idea yet that this church, this, this called-out assembly of people is going to be made up of people from all nations. Did you, did you sense the heart, the heart of love that Chuck had for the Muslim people as he shared this morning? Did it, did it begin to grow in you a little bit or even say, you know, maybe, maybe I should begin to look at Muslims in a different way than I have before? The Jews didn't fully get this. They said, look, it's okay if you come from other nations. We get it. We understand God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. And, and in fact, we, we should have seen it in Isaiah, the Old Testament, all along. Even when our, our, our great father Abraham was called, God promised that his progeny would be a blessing to all 
nation. So we should have seen that. But look, clearly the covenant comes through the Jewish nation. That's where God's covenant lies. And so we need to stay connected to Israel. False teachers with ulterior motives snuck in and tried to hijack the church and make sure that it stayed under Jewish control. It was getting out of hand. Big problem, the Apostle Paul says. And this the guy, remember, that was going around trying to kill everybody that believed in Jesus? Well, now he's been saved, and he recognizes that these false teachers in Galatia were telling the Jewish and Gentile converts that believing in Jesus is all well and good, but it's not enough. Jesus is God after all, and and God made this covenant with Israel, so you have to stay connected with Israel, and the best way to do that is to stay connected to the law. And the law, the symbol of the law is circumcision, and and then the dietary laws as well. You've got to do all of these things to prove that you're a Christian. One is saved by Jesus, believing in Jesus, plus keeping the law. And Paul wrote to deal with this error, this false gospel, and to say that our hope cannot be in the law. The law only diagnoses and condemns. It does not save. And that's what Paul is writing to these people. It cannot make a lie. The false teacher said that Paul got the gospel wrong. He... He learned it from the, from, the, from the apostles in Jerusalem, and he's a little bit confused about it, so we're here to set it straight. Remember, Paul had been in Galatia about a year earlier when he wrote this. And they're coming along and saying, look, Paul's a great guy, but uh, how long has he spent in Jerusalem these last 14 years or so, 15 uh, not not very long, uh, but and you know that 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 the, that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and, and James is the leader of the church, the half brother of Jesus, and Peter and John. These are the guys. Paul's got it wrong. Paul responded by saying, "I've been down this road before. Let's revisit it so that you will know that the gospel I preached to you was the true gospel." Well, I told you last uh, Sunday that we plan to spend 10 weeks in the book of Galatians. Let's just say that plan is no longer in play. Um, it's highly unlikely we're going to get through this important letter in 10 weeks unless Sean preaches two chapters next Sunday. And <clears throat> um, we know that's not happening anymore that it was happening that I was going to preach a whole chapter today. We're going to hear this same theme of the gospel all the way through, but that's okay. Assuming the gospel is the quickest way to lose it. Taking this message for granted is the quickest way to allow it to slip away. The gospel informs not just our relationship with Jesus for eternal salvation, but it impacts all of our lives as we've already sung about this morning and as hopefully Sean gets to next week Galatians 2:20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So here is the plan for the remainder of the time this morning. I prepared a handout that chronicles the life of Paul from his birth up through the important incredibly important council at Jerusalem that we see in Acts 15. Galatians was actually written before the council that took place in Acts 15. Uh, And I would have passed these out this morning already because it sort of informs where we're going. But I figure if I pass this out this morning, uh, you know, you're, you're just not going to be hanging with the message. But if you really seriously want to understand Galatians, and you want to understand how the gospel moved in those early days, this will be helpful. You can read it in the ESV, but I put some notes in here, ESV Study Bible. But, but I put some notes in here that sort of speak to what we're thinking about, the things that we're talking about and, and how it goes. So as you're on your way out today, you can pick up these. I think we, we probably have enough for, you know, two per family so that if you are sitting around studying this, which I know you'll do. I know that many of you will cancel your Father's Day lunch plans and go home and read this timeline of the Apostle Paul's life. Um, Our text this morning is Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Let's stand together and read. Then, after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, all Gentiles, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, we pray that you would burn this truth, the truth of this gospel, into our hearts, and that we'd never grow old. It would never grow old to us. We'd never grow weary of hearing it. But, that, but even as this morning, I, I, I was just overwhelmed thinking about the life that Jesus lived in order that he might die for our sins. I, it was like seeing the gospel with a fresh pair of eyes all over. I, I've known it to be true. But thank you for impressing it on my heart in a new and fresh way today.
pray that you will do that for all of us and that we will leave more committed than ever to the pure gospel that Jesus died for sinners. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, when we first uh, started thinking about Chuck and Andy being here this morning, uh, I just thought it was so cool that that they're in the area that is or really close to the area that that was the province of Galatia, where they are in Turkey. Not exactly the same place, but close. Chuck said, uh, now that we're connected with you guys, you've seen us, that kind of thing. But look, we've been connected with them for a long time. Andy spent like three or four years here, right? Uh, you, rem- you remember Andy. A lot of you do. You don't think you do. But you remember one Sunday right at the very beginning in the book of Ephesians. I preached a message from Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I titled the message, in fact, Looking for Blessings in All the Wrong Places. And I prayed at the end of, you know, the time that I pray after Scripture and I slipped off to the side. And when you came back, Sean was standing up there. And Andy came shuffling in you know, with her bedroom slippers and saying, oh, I don't feel good today. I, I think I'll just stay home and watch church on television. And, and then Sean was about three different preachers. And that's when we all knew that God had gifted Sean to preach, you know, when, he's, when he was saying, God, I'll give you anything you want. You know, just believe him. Send your prayer handkerchiefs to me and I'll pray over him. So I bet a lot of you remember that day. Well, Andy was the one who was in that Skit or sketch if it's important to you, and I know it is to many of you. Uh, our text picks up in, in a bit of an awkward spot for us. I mean, you're going to recall in chapter 1 that Paul defended his version of the gospel to those one-year-old converts who had believed that Jesus alone had saved them, but now they were considering this false gospel that the Judaizers were offering, saying that Paul had been mistaken and that one must keep the law in order to stay saved. So Paul had was writing them, we read about it in, in chapter 1. He had already told the Galatians in the first chapter that, that Jesus had given the truth of the gospel to him. Not long at all after he was saved, Jesus had come to him, mo- most likely while he was in Arabia, in those first two to three years uh, of his walk with Jesus. That was, And then after that, Paul went to Jerusalem, met Peter, uh, James, Everybody was scared of him because of who he was. Uh, That was his first trip to Jerusalem. But while he was there, just like he always did, he started preaching and people wanted to kill him. So they, they, they said, we better get you out of town. So they sent Paul off to Tarsus, but he eventually ended up in Antioch of Syria. And some 14 years after his conversion, the way that Paul talks about time can be a little confusing. Like I said, last year or last week we talked about three years the way Jews reckon time could be from December of one year to January of the not the the next month but the following year so it could have been as little as 14 months or it could have been a full three years and now he says 14 years later which sort of makes you think it's 17 years but really he's saying 14 years after his conversion he ended up in Jerusalem he was sent there most likely by the church at Antioch to take famine relief along with Barnabas. We read about that in Acts chapter 
11. And that's the subject of our text this morning where Galatians 2, 1 picks up. The church in Antioch, like I say, sent Paul and, and, <clears throat> and Barnabas down. And there had been this... Uh, a prophet Agabus who stood up and he prophesied about this great famine. And so they sent him down to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. And when Paul went down there, though, he, he, he said, look, not only did, did they send me, but God sent me also. Um, when, when Paul went down, he, he recognized that, 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 that the Holy Spirit had come upon the church at Pentecost and, and, and that Jesus had commissioned these apostles to take the gospel everywhere. And so it was important as Paul was preaching to the Gentiles. He'd already been preaching to the Gentiles for a few years. And, and it was important that, that the apostles affirmed the gospel that he was preaching. So it was a, an important trip for him. By the time Paul made his second trip to Jerusalem, which we're reading about this morning, Peter had already preached the, the gospel to Cornelius and his household in Caesarea, and salvation had come to the Gentiles somewhere before or after that. Paul had started preaching to the Gentiles. In Cilicia, probably most in Tarsus, even south of where Galatia is, or over in Antioch, but it was late in the game when he got to Antioch. So he's coming down and, and wanting to make sure that we're all on the same page. Salvation had come to the Gentiles the same way it had come to the Jews, which was repent of your sin and trust that Jesus died on the cross for you. So Paul knew the gospel very well. He knew a couple of other things. Uh, first, he knew that Jesus had come to him personally and given him a full explanation of the gospel. Not only had God entrusted those apostles in Jerusalem with this incredibly important message, but, but Jesus had come to him as well personally and had said, I want you to go to the Gentiles and here's the full explanation of the gospel. The one that we read about in Paul's letters so many times. In other words, Paul's authority was equal to that of the, of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And he has to make this point because, because all these people were criticizing him and saying, Paul, who's Paul? Was he, where was he on Pentecost? Oh, that's right, he was out trying to kill Christians right after that. Uh, who was it that oversaw? Look, I'm glad Paul's converted, but he's just not. He, look, Peter, James, John, they're here. Paul somewhere in here. Paul knew differently. He knew that his authority was equal to that of the Jerusalem apostle. Secondly, he knew that there were many Jews who wanted to pervert the gospel and add works to salvation. You have to keep the law, and the symbol of keeping the law is circumcision. That shows your submission to God. But when you think about it, what does circumcision really show? It showed a Gentile was putting himself in submission to the nation of Israel. Or to certain people from Israel who were leading the church. By the time Paul went to Jerusalem, as, as we're going to read about in our text, legalism was alive and well. And he took Titus as a test case uh, to make sure the apostles, the apostles in Jerusalem were still holding to the pure gospel that Jesus alone saves you and that you do not have to add anything to your belief in Christ in order to be a Christian. He, he, 
went not only because the, the church had sent him, but also by special revelation of God. Verse 2, that's what verse 2 is talking about. Now, while Paul was in Jerusalem, he encountered men who sought to corrupt this gospel by seeking to force Titus, who was a Gentile brother, to be circumcised. They said, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You're bringing a Gentile into Jerusalem and you're, you're bringing him into, even you want to bring him to the temple? He's uncircumcised for goodness sake. Look, okay, he believes in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but he needs to be the same way we are. Apparently, Paul had anticipated just such an attack on the gospel. The, the language of verses 3 to 5 is the language of espionage, of intrigue. False brothers, not misguided brothers, but false brothers were brought in to secretly spy out our freedom in Christ. It, it, you know, we, we greet people on Sunday morning and we want everybody to feel just as welcome as they can. And it's just almost impossible to think that there may be actually every once in a while somebody coming in here who plans to, to, to try to change this church around to get it believing the right way. In fact, every once in a while, somebody says, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And they're ancillary issues. They're not issues about the gospel. They're other things. And, and you know what? I, I just have to bite my tongue from saying, this is not the church for you. Go, please, find, find some place else. In fact, I do say a lot of times, this may not be the place for you. Because I can promise you, those are not the things we're going to major on. We're going to major on the gospel. Well, these people actually came in just like spies, just like, you know, movies that you're going to go see, where a, 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 someone who appears to be a good guy really isn't. And, and, and this person came in with deceit. And what was their goal? To bring people who were free in Jesus into submission, either back into submission or into submission for the first time under the law, this law that does nothing but condemn. Again, nothing wrong with the law. But if you're trying to reach God by keeping the law, it's going to condemn you. It's, going to, it's too heavy a load for you to carry. You can't do it. And they wanted to bring these people back into slavery. Paul accused them of intentional deceit. They were not friends of the gospel. They were friends of the law. They were functioning as slave traders, promising a better life, but secretly intending all along to bring their converts into slavery of the worst kind. Paul argued passionately and effectively for the purity of the gospel. And not only the Galatians, we are beneficiaries of his arguments, arguments that cost him dearly. In a lot of ways. And we sit and stand this morning as free men and women of Jesus. Because of Paul's willingness to go to battle at the right place. Paul was fighting for the truth of his gospel all of his ministry life. And in the early years he was fighting the Judaizers who were so called because they confused Christianity and Judaism. 
in later years, the prosperity gospel got a foothold in the church with all of its accompanying heresies, such as the, the belief that there would not be a bodily resurrection of believers. The spiritual resurrection has already occurred and we are resurrected in Christ and we have everything. We're children of the King and just ask it and claim it and God gives it to you. Um, such a belief brings Jesus' bodily resurrection into question. Things never change, do they? Legalism, prosperity gospel. You see any of that today? I mean, isn't it interesting that one of Satan's key instruments, Paul, ended up defending the gospel at some of its most crucial moments? It's not easy to defend the truth in an age of lies. But remember when your definition of the gospel, and, and it happens all the time, doesn't it? Saw Teresa Troth this morning dropping off something. She said, going to a family reunion. You know, there's always that possibility that somebody at the family reunion is going to say, hey, now wait a minute. You're going to say, if I don't believe like you believe, I'm going to spend eternity in hell. I'm going to hell. That's what you're saying? Man, that's awful. How can you be so judgmental? It's always been that way. From the earliest days. And, and in fact, when somebody says that to you, what, what, what usually follows? I'm a good person. I mean, I didn't murder anybody. Well, same as it's, it's always been. You know something? We may not be able to change the minds of those outside of our body. But we can, and we will do everything to protect, protect the purity of the gospel inside of this church that we possibly can. And it, it, look, all of our elders recognize that as our absolute first responsibility, is to protect the truth of the gospel. But it's not a call just for the elders. It's a call for every single one of us in this church. Every one of us to protect the truth of the gospel at all costs. In verses 6 to 10, you, you may get the impression that Paul was utterly unimpressed with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Not so. The, the Greek language in this section, especially in, in, in verse 6, has been called by some a train wreck. I mean, remember, this is, this is one, one of the most intelligent men alive in the first century, and he's writing horribly. His grammar is terrible in the Greek. In fact, verse 6 is not a complete sentence. It, 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 it's clauses. Now, when you look at it in English, this section seems to say, hey, you know what? Peter, James, John, head honchos, I don't care. They don't mean anything to me. They got nothing to tell me. Now, that's not what Paul is saying at all. It's, it's very difficult for us in our culture and with our sensibilities to understand exactly what he was saying. Why, why did he use these, these clauses? Was it because he was so upset he was just writing wildly? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible, but more, more likely, he was saying, okay, I've got two things I need you to understand. One, I have great respect for the leaders in Jerusalem. But two, my authority is equal. And, and, and they can't tell me anything that Jesus hasn't told me. Um, you've you got to remember that 
that Paul's critics were saying he was inferior to the apostles at Jerusalem. So it was important for him to say, no, I'm not. Jesus came to me and he gave me this truth that I'm sharing with you. So he wanted the Galatian believers to know that the leaders of the church at Jerusalem fully accepted him and they affirmed the gospel that he preached and they didn't say, you know what, Paul, you got it, but let's tweak it a little bit. No, he said they didn't add anything to what I was already saying. The debate about the gospel ended with all the Jerusalem apostles in agreement with Paul. Peter and James and John extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul, agreeing 100% with his version of the gospel. Titus was not forced to do anything that would indicate that he trusted in the law. He remained as he was. And here's what's really cool and interesting about the gospel. You think like, Paul is so narrow. No, not, not at all. He's just narrow about the one thing, the gospel. But because there was unity amongst all of the church leaders about the gospel, there was room for diversity as well. Paul and Barnabas would go to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and the other three would minister along with their Jewish brothers to Jews, both those inside and outside of Christ. The same gospel would be preached, but there would be different styles of ministry that would address the different cultural sensibilities of those to whom they were ministering, those they were targeting. Um, one of the things that Chuck said this morning that he, or he didn't say this morning that he said last night was, it takes seven years once a Muslim hears the gospel before he'll come to Christ. Yeah, but it takes years before that just interacting. That's what he was sharing with us last night. And they, but How long were you guys there earlier? Two years. And, and going back, can't wait to get back. That's always, to, to me, such an indication that God has called somebody. They can't wait to get back there. That's home. That's where they're, they're heading. But, but they're going, and they're not going to minister the same way there as they do. Here, one of the differences that they were talking about was that Muslim people like to argue. Now, we like to soften things and, you know, say, look, I... You know, just here's something you may want to consider. But there, you know, they're in each other's face, which is another reason I know that God has perfectly called Chuck to go to these people. Because that's, you know, that's the way God has made him. And so he functions very well there. I can't ever see Andy doing that, you know. But And, and, and Paul was going to minister differently than Peter. The Jews would continue, though. Think about this. Even though they were ministering to the Jews, the Jewish leaders would continue to accept Gentile Christians. And Paul would go out of his way not to offend Jewish brothers in Christ. In fact, remember not long ago we read, Paul said, I have become all things to all. But when, when I'm with those who are under the law, that's the way I... I minister to them. I don't do anything to offend them. I'm, when I'm outside of the law, I live like that, except that I am subject to the law of Christ. I'm not wild and crazy, but I, I do not 
major on the minors when I'm with these people. When I'm over here, I'm watching my P's and Q's. When I'm over here, I'm focusing on the thing that matters the most. And it's all for the sake of the gospel that some might be saved. The question that we started with at the beginning, am I rightly related to Jesus because I keep the law or do I keep the law because I'm rightly related to Jesus? You know, adding to the gospel is like taking an Olympic gold medal and say, oh, I believe I'll have this bronzed. I mean, it's, to add the law to gospel doesn't enhance it. It ruins it. It absolutely ruins it. Well, as we move toward the end of, uh, of, of this message and, and this time in Galatians, just want to encourage you not to let the idea of the gospel cause you to lose focus on the person of the gospel, and that's Jesus. I mean, we need, to, we, we don't want to be defending just the gospel. We're defending the truth that God saves sinners through Jesus. And we need to give him our lives completely, as we've already been called to do today. Jesus is at the center of the gospel. So where do you stand with Jesus? Some of you are doing your absolute best in this world so that when you come to the end of your life, maybe, just maybe, God will let you into heaven. I've got bad news. You'll never be good enough. You can't do it. But there's good news at the same time. Jesus was good enough. In fact, if Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death, the payment that we must give for our sin is death, then Jesus is the only person who really didn't have to die because he had never sinned. But when he did die, he did so willingly in our place. And when you believe that he took your sin upon his cross, then you're made righteousness. You're, you're made, you receive his righteousness. You are made righteous. His righteousness becomes yours, and that's all you need. That's your only hope, in fact. Oh, but look, I am a really good person. And again, I, you know what? I resonated with that a while ago. I don't like people telling me if they don't believe exactly like they do. They're, look at all the beliefs that there are. Look, I'm just telling you what Scripture says. You'll never be good enough. You think you're bad? Would you compare your life with the Apostle Paul who said, Look, I was the most religious person you will ever know. I don't think anybody of us, any of us here were more religious than Paul. And yet, he said, everything that I gained, I count for loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Oh, that's not my problem. I'm wicked. God could never save me. You ever had anybody tell you that? I, I have. Two or three occasions. You don't know what I've done. God can't say, have you killed somebody? Paul did. You're not better than Paul. You're not worse than Paul. And yet, he rejoiced in Jesus. Your hope is this truth that we've been thinking about for weeks. 
that Jesus died for you. Let's pray. If you've been coming to church all your life and you've heard about Jesus, I I get it. I, I did that for 18 years. I was at a Baptist church. Again, nothing wrong with what they were saying. I just didn't hear it. I didn't get it. It didn't make sense to me. Jesus died on the cross for you. I just want to implore you, quit trying to do better so that God will be happy with you. God is pleased with His Son, Jesus. And when Jesus lives in you, He is pleased with you. Period. That's the gospel. That's what you need to believe. He died for you. And and Christian, that truth is worth fighting for. It, it, It... It is worth dying for. And a lot of people have died so that we might live by hearing and believing this good news. Would you stand together? Let's just close by singing prayerfully. Jesus, 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 There's just something about that name.